This episode of the Gondrepreneur Podcast is made possible by Arroya, a comprehensive cannabis production platform for commercial growers. If you are a commercial cannabis grower, you can use Arroya to level up your production workflow. Featuring a combination of precision instruments and powerful software that help you intelligently cultivate, dry, and process cannabis, the Arroya Cannabis Production Platform is your ticket to greater yields and consistent quality. Request a quote today online at arroya.io. That's A-R-O-Y-A dot I-O. Hi, I'm Kara Whitstock, culture editor at Gondrepreneur and host of our YouTube show, Fresh Cut. The best way to understand cannabis business is to speak directly to those who work within it. And Fresh Cut was created to shine recognition on the people who fill these roles. In this interview series, we focus on those with their hands in the dirt, both literally and figuratively, from cultivators to bud tenders, educators to advocates, activists to lobbyists. We aim to illuminate the workers who keep this industry thriving. Enjoy one-on-one conversations with me and guests by watching along on the Ganjapreneur YouTube channel and follow our social channels to keep up with the latest episodes. Have a great day. Hey there, I'm your host, TG Brandfault, and thank you for listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast, where we try to bring you actionable information and normalize cannabis through the stories of Gondrepreneurs, activists, and industry stakeholders. Today, I'm joined by George Allen. He's the chairman of the board for Lowell Farms, founder of cannabis industry investment firm Geronimo Capital LLC, and former president for Acreage Holdings. Allen has been involved in multiple financing rounds, dozens of acquisitions, executive recruiting and an initial public offering uh how are you doing this afternoon george hey great thanks so much i'm really uh, grateful for the opportunity to talk to you today and really have enjoyed uh enjoyed your podcast so thanks for having me thank you so much uh you have done a lot in this industry man and and, and it's you know i've had a lot of guests on the show i've been doing it since you know 2015 and uh somebody with your sort of breadth of knowledge uh i'm, I'm really delighted to have you on before we get into sort of all these little things that you have big things that you have done uh what is your background man oh i i, I gotta say uh it's a little bit of a crime of fashion i got involved uh I got involved in the industry after a pretty boring career in finance and Wall Street. I, I spent a lot of time, uh, started out in finance and then moved into private equity. I did some uh, I did some fun stuff in software, did a software roll-up in, in a public company. And, and then uh, more recently, before uh, getting into the industry, I ran a, I ran a, um, a family office for, uh, for a group of high net worth individuals in New York and uh, and that's when I first started getting exposed to cannabis because uh, the family offices were the only uh, investor group that was looking seriously at cannabis back, back uh, you know, only only uh, short as four or five years ago. And um, and that's when I started getting in, into it. And I saw, I really saw the the scale of the opportunity and and uh, and how much blue sky there was. And that's what drew me in. And from there, I was hooked. <laughs> 
So, you know, you, you describe your, your life as sort of before cannabis is boring and in finance. Um, how, what are some of the biggest differences uh, sort of culturally that, that you had to sort of deal with moving from something as boring as finance, as you put it, uh, to the cannabis space? Well, I got to say that the, the big, the biggest challenge you've got in cannabis, uh, in, there's really, there's really two that I point to. The first is there's not, there's no precedent for uh, how to do things uh, in cannabis, right, and how to do them at scale, uh, it, because they're, they're, it's such a young industry. So I, I don't know that you've got, you've got a lot of it, um, precedent for that in other businesses where. You know, there's a big industry that happens up happens overnight, uh, but you know it has no analogs to it. And I think that's the first challenge. And the second challenge that is just crazy is, uh, you know, you just only have to walk two or three feet in this business before you find another stumbling block that is imposed by, um, you know, the federal policy in this business. And and that's just super strange working with banks uh, and trying to, and, and trying to figure all that out. Uh, and as well as, you know, employees and employment practices, a whole bunch of service providers that are available to most businesses that cannabis can't avail themselves to. And that, that um, that's, it's a workable problem, but it takes, uh, it takes clock cycles for sure. And tell me about sort of the learning curve, right? I mean, you said you talk about these stumbling blocks. Maybe can you can you tell me about you know a specific instance, sort of early on in your career that that you had to sort of navigate through? Well, I'll tell you. I'll give you one that was kind of fun. We were back uh, back in the early days at Acreage. I was a the president at Acreage was a company called High Street Capital Partners, and. And, um, you know, it was very challenging to raise money. And back then, uh, Donald Trump had just been elected president. Uh, he put in a, a, a pretty, uh, a pretty anti-cannabis, uh, he put in a pretty anti-cannabis um, uh, 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 attorney general named Jeff Sessions. And Jeff Sessions had come out with a pretty militant view on cannabis and raising money in that environment just to pay payroll was uh, was very challenging, and you know I think it was about um, you know it was about one year into to, to Trump's um, in about uh, presidency where you know Jeff Sessions had come out and he pulled down a document called the Cole Memo, and the Cole Memo had been you know some resting piece for cannabis entrepreneurs who were trying to make sure they weren't going to you know jeopardize their career and their and their net worth. Uh, to, um, you know, by being involved in the industry. And so, uh, and so uh, when he, when he pulled down the coal memo, it created a whole bunch of problems for, for everyone in the industry. And that was when, um, that was actually when we first approached John Boehner about being on the board of a cannabis company. Cause I felt, uh, I felt that it, you had to fight fire with fire. And if, uh, if Jeff Sessions, was uh, was coming out arm swinging against cannabis that we had to show the world uh, we had to show the world that it was going to be okay uh, to to participate and invest in cannabis businesses and it felt uh, it felt like we could do all the arm waving we wanted to but if we really wanted to, to you know punctuate that point we had to bring somebody in that people knew and understood and and con convincing uh, Boehner to be on the board of a cannabis company was. Uh, 
was was uh, was the best way we felt to do it, and that was a fun conversation trying to get John to do it. But it it really did uh, it really did save our skins back then at the company because it made it a lot easier in the wake of making that announcement and, and going on uh, Good Morning America and doing all the other stuff we did. It really did make it a heck of a lot easier to to get financing for a cannabis company, and so. That's just one of the many stories we've had, you know, fighting this fight. And in a lot of respects, um, it's made the businesses better. It's made the businesses better because we've all watched what's happened in Canada and the excess, uh, the excess caused by, you know, capital euphoria. That we haven't seen that kind of capital euphoria in the United States. And I think that's, that's made it, uh, it's made it harder, but it's definitely made the businesses healthier and the industry healthier. I just want to go back to a minute. This John, this John Bonner thing. When, when I, I wrote that, when that broke, uh, you know that that was, uh, it was a big story at that time. And I don't know how much detail you can give me, but but can you just tell me what was his reaction when you approached him with this? Um, you know, actually, to be honest with you, he he was leaning pretty heavily in favor of it. He'd been trying to figure out, uh, he'd been trying to figure out his position on it, reconsidering where it was, you know, where he wanted to come out on it. Cause he saw the shift. I mean, John has always been, uh, you know, he's, he's always been a center driven, uh, Republican. You know, I don't think you can be speaker of the house without, um, without doing that. And so he, he, uh, I think he saw the writing on the wall, saw the shift, saw 64% of Americans in favor of legalization, one form or the other. And, uh, and so, um, you know, I think, I think, but largely, I think that there, there are many, many aspects that, that convinced him to do it. There was the veteran angle and how much relief it was bringing veterans who were desperately in need of, uh, of some relief from PTSD, uh, from, from uh, just a horrific amount of PTSD, um, you know, haunting our veterans uh, to, to, to the opioid uh, epidemic and how much uh, how much relief uh, cannabis could pose for the opioid epidemic. So it was a it was a series of discussions that we had sitting down with John uh, and walking him through the data and walking him through where he felt uh, there was there was sufficient um, science and sufficient uh, you know sort of public support. And eventually he said, "Yeah, I'll lend my name to this this cause and this um, and this um, and this journey." And uh, it was a it was a ton of fun. It was uh, there, I've never experienced I've never experienced anything like it in my career, and it was it was uh, it was really exciting. And I think to your point, it, it did help sort of change some of the rank and file, more more centrist sort of maybe not the the people in Congress, but certainly people that I know that are older than me that are sort of you know your your moderate Republican. I, I think that changed uh, their thinking a bit to see sort of one of their own somebody that they uh, admire in, in some respects uh, enter the space. Um, You've been in this industry since 2017, which to a lot of people doesn't seem like that long. I mean, if you think about it, but I mean, for the cannabis industry, it's a lifetime. I mean, if we just, you know, sort of look at what's happened uh, with legalization since 2017, how many states have gone online through the legislative process, that sort of thing. Um, Can you tell me how the industry, in your estimation, has changed since your entree into it? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and it's not that long. It's not that long. There are people who have been doing this for a long time. And, and frankly, our success has been 
our success has really been on the backs of people who have fought a much harder fight for, for, you know, a much longer period of time. Uh, the industry, but you're, you're correct in saying the industry has also shifted a lot because acceptance has changed. I think, to, I think there's a couple of things that are really going on in the industry that I find uh, sort of investable trends. I think the first is if you, if you really look at what was going on in cannabis, medical was the sort of, the the horse that everyone rode into rode in on right it, it made a ton of sense there's a ton of injustice around the medical side it made a ton of sense to wrap ourselves in the medical story originally because um because it it, it really exposed the hypocrisy uh and the insensitivity that uh 75 uh, years of terrible policy had implemented but beyond but i think we're past uh, the medical story now. I really do. I think, um, and I think there's an, a, the, the consumer adoption and consumer acceptance is really migrating a, across the country where there's much more willingness to be open to trying cannabis. There's much more willingness to accepting the fact that cannabis can be a part of somebody else's life, even if it's no, not only part of your life. And I think that changes behavior patterns in a way that is something that we as an uh, is is an is a service provider in the industry we need to we need to pay attention to i think uh, for, for one trend that i find really particularly interesting is that smokable flour in california is is the fastest growing category by dollars in california and that's really interesting what's interesting about that is it it's telling i believe it's telling you that the consumer is moving from formats that were really good at hiding cannabis consumption to moving to formats that uh, are no longer concerned about hiding cannabis consumption. And I think that um, that's super enlightening. I think the raw, uh, the raw plant here is by far the most interesting uh, form factor for consumers. It offers a, a ton of variety, selection, and choice, which a recreational consumer cares a lot about, right? But if you listen to an MSO, most of the time they're going to talk a ton about consistency, right? And consistency is a, is a great sort of, um, is, is a great sort of end objective if what your business is medicine, but consistency isn't necessarily what, uh, you know, you're looking for in, in, in consumer offering of recreational cannabis because recreational cannabis consumers they love the journey, right? They, they love going, they love sampling different products and different strains and different plants. They're not loyal to one strain, right? If, if, if you've got chronic back pain and you found the strain that's going to relieve you from back pain, then, then you're, you're very likely to be loyal to, to that. But, but in recreational cannabis, it's, which is a, you know, I, I believe the, the more exciting and larger market, uh, that's not the, it's not the same, you know, we don't pray to the same God of consistency. What you pray to is quality, right? You, you need to have the quality in the product offering that consumers want. And that's something that I've really learned from coming out here to California and, uh, and sort of skinning my knee on the market out here, because it's, it's, it's a much more, um, it's a market where consumers have you know, a, a couple thousand choices of SKUs and a typical and a typical dispensary. You know, and if you go into a New York, uh, you go into a New York MSO dispensary, you might see twelve SKUs on the menu. Uh, and so you you've got to go to the place where consumers have several thousand options to really understand uh, what they're looking for and what they want. 
I mean, and to your point too, I think that we're starting to realize also that people who have been using recreationally, you know, their entire lives, a lot of times are actually using medically, you know, I mean, I don't think it's wrong to say that just because something, you know, makes you feel good, you know, I, I believe that that's a sort of medical purpose. No, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And by the way, I don't think it's it's right for any of us to judge why people why people use it. You know, I think that you know it it it's it, no different than any time in the past. Every, everybody is responsible for their own individual behavior. Uh, but but you know the choice of of how you recreate. I think that's that's something we've we've shown the science behind cannabis and the the social costs. Uh, relative to the social benefit is is profoundly in favor of uh, normalization. So I'm I'm right there with you. And and you, you know you you spoke a little bit about you know MSOs, which we're talking about multi-state operators. And you know you'd mentioned earlier there's a lot of people you know have been in this industry a lot longer than than I have. You have. Um, and and so one of the things that I see quite a lot. Is, uh, is a lot of blowback against the multi-state operator. I mean, here in New York, you know, we, we have that mon- monopoly system. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of sort of progressive stuff that was in the bill. I mean, we can smoke anywhere. We can smoke cigarettes, which is pretty fantastic. Um, but, um, you know, the, I think a lot of the sort of, let's say, stoner community at large has a problem uh, with a lot of these big companies coming in. Uh, you know, they, they take over and they, you know, and, and, and not to say that it's a, it's a green goop kind of takeover of what's going on. But I, I got to ask you, you know, what role should uh, multi-state operators have in the cannabis space? Well, boy, I could talk all online for that. I've been on both sides of the fence, right? Um, I ran a multi-state operator for quite some time, and then uh, and then I decided to head out to California and um, and 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 focus on uh, focus on California because I really wanted to build brand and understand where the consumer was going. Uh, th- now, if you really want to deconstruct what the multi-state operator is all about, it's really at its essence these uh, these limited concession rights that almost like uh, gambling casinos, the states have given out. And the premise originally was that cannabis has just an enormous amount of social danger to it. Uh, and they, you know, you gotta be very careful about how much wildfire you start with cannabis. So the idea was to keep it very narrow and contained because with 10 operators, uh, a regulator can guarantee that he knows where every throat the choke is if uh, something goes wrong. Right. So, and and I think that was originally the premise here of of how they started with these limited license concessions. The reality is, though, I think we've seen um, out where the social cost and where the risk is in cannabis. And I think that experiment is showing us that there's um, that there's that there's less inherent risk here in having more of an open market approach to cannabis. Now, I know that's not popular. Because that has a major impact on on margins, uh, and that has a major impact on pricing in the marketplace. But that's probably why you hear from so many consumers that it's frustrating. Because as I said, it's it's not that interesting to go into a dispensary where you got twelve options, like the MedMen store on on Madison Avenue, or you know, it, it's it's it, that's that's kind of boring relative to. Uh, the MedMen store that's you know located in on, on North Hollywood. So, I, in in my opinion, um, the 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 market's sort of learning it. And there was never any promise 
to the to the MSO model that these concessions were going to be enduring forever. Like in no single statute does it prohibit the state from issuing more licenses over a period of time. And so I think what you're going to see is a more open market approach. I also take the point of view that uh, that the federal government, when they legalize uh, when, when, or, or they decriminalize the product, you're going to see more of an open market approach here, regardless of, of, of how the individual states behave, because uh, consumers aren't going to wait for state by state permission um, to, to enjoy the cannabis that they want uh, when the when the federal government decriminalizes this. So I think um, in a lot of respects, uh, the states are going to lose a fair amount of strength and, uh, and negotiating leverage at the table as, uh, as um, the market matures here and decriminalization happens in Washington. That's a super insightful uh, sort of response, you know, and, and um you know, and especially from you being on both sides of it. And, and you know, you had said that you had you had shifted your focus uh, to California. And so I want to ask you a couple of questions about California is, is what have you found uh, that a company has to do in that state to reach success? Because it's so competitive and, and not just reach that success, but maintain that success. Yeah, it's all people. It's 100 percent people like you. You need to have a great team. And that doesn't necessarily mean have like IP between the ears of a grower who's, you know, uh, quote unquote, a master grower. It means people that are willing to shed, you know, really shed blood for the business. I mean, it takes that type of dedication uh, in, in, uh, in, in a competitive industry like this, where there's so many people that get into the business because of passion, uh, but, but don't necessarily have the execution skills or the business skills to succeed. But you, you have a constant flow of people that thinking they can. And uh, defending against that in California requires that you build a really, really solid team um, that, can, that can work cohesively together. Because there's no way that uh, one single individual uh, can do it on its own. It's, just too, it's, too, it's too competitive a market and too large of an opportunity. So I'm very focused on, on team recruiting, building culture, keeping, you know, working on retention, um, and, and there's a ton of other aspects that sort of make up California, but if you don't have the right people, you're not even, you're not even, you're not even checking into, to the, to the airport with a ticket. And so what are some of the challenges when recruiting the sort of high level executives that, that you need to sort of, you know, help lead that team and, and what attributes do you look for, uh, in these, uh, when recruiting high level positions? You know, I think it's hard. I would I wouldn't say that there's attributes. A lot of people early on thought cannabis looked like alcohol, so let's look for alcohol. A lot of people think it looks like CPG, so let's look for CPG. Um, I don't think that there are attributes from a um, uh, you know from a sort of like a resume standpoint. What I do think is is uh, desire and passion um, and and ability to to really commit themselves to. Uh, a goal and a vision. I think that's something that, that we look for. It's hard to look for as a screening process, but you can find out pretty fast uh, after the fact. Um, it, I also think, you know, from my standpoint, it, it's very it's very hard for, for people who don't have uh, any experience with the plant, although it, we've got a number of extremely talented people on our team who play roles in the organization. 
who don't have a personal relationship with the plan. And so I'm, I'm constantly surprised by that. Um, but it, in, in a lot of respects, I think they're, they're, you know, what motivates them isn't necessarily their loyalty to, to, to the, all the green goodness that's inside a cannabis plant, but rather their loyalty or the thing that drives them is the excitement around building and creating. And, uh, and that's an opportunity that you get in cannabis. Cannabis is more of a, a blank canvas than you tend to get in other industries. And, and that's been, uh, that's been really exciting. So some people respond to that really well. And some people respond to it as, wait a minute, there's no, there's no, there's no, uh, you mean there's no like you know, building plan or then no, there's no, uh, you know, rollout plan that I can just look to and implement, uh, but rather we have to be creative and, and create it ourselves. And, and that's right for certain people and not right for others. So the, um, what, so, so, I mean, you get, I'm sure that you find yourself in situations where, you know, you, you're looking at resumes or, or recruiting people who don't have that experience, that background in cannabis, where, what, um, what sectors, uh, what businesses uh, do you, in industries, do you see a lot of sort of people you recruit or that, or, or that apply to you come from? Um, you know, a lot of it, so a lot of it's geographic, like, where are you? So we're, we're in, you know, we're in Monterey, which is, uh, in, in, you know, one of the, one of the most prolific areas in the country for growing. So growing anything from leafy vegetables to tomatoes. So you tend to see a lot of people come from agriculture, uh, who are, who are interested both, both back office as well as out in the field, uh, who are interested in a lot of respects, cannabis is cannabis is pretty interesting in that um, some people are just bitten by the bug in one form or another. And just by virtue of the fact that they submitted their resume is enough of an indication that, uh, that they're, that they're curious and want to take, they're, they're committed to uh, learning about a new industry. And so uh, and I think in, in a fair amount of respect, as I said before, there isn't necessarily like a, an industry that we say, hey, we want to recruit everybody from this, you know, CPG or, in, or beer or liquor space. But rather, it's, it's more about uh, their individual story and what they're, what they're seeking and what motivates them. So I want to switch gears a little bit and, and talk to you just about some financing stuff. Um, you know, you've you've done an IPO, which again in the cannabis space is not super common. Um, what are some of the challenges uh, for doing an initial public offering in this space, and and you know how does it differ uh, from more traditional industries? Well, I think a, a couple of things. Um, uh, uh, not to be overly technical about it, but what we did at Acreage was a reverse uh, public takeover. So we basically merged into an existing shell. It, in a lot of respects, there's there's many parts of it that are similar to an IPO, uh, but but technically speaking, it was an RTO. I actually think um, I don't think there the differences between cannabis and other industries uh, really exist. But but I think I'm in the minority there. I think. I think you actually need to communicate your story to investors the, the, it, it, with the same amount of clarity and transparency and honesty that other businesses hold themselves accountable to or other successful ones do. And if you're not going to do that, but rather uh, you're going to sort of um, 
uh, you're going to expect that the industry, you're going to expect that investors are more tolerant or more lenient uh, with, with, um, you know, with sort of uh, with grievances, so to speak, uh, th- than they would be with a with a mainstream industry. You're going to eventually, you're going to get burned, um, and the problem with with or actually the the, the self correcting mechanism that exists with investors is that uh, you know management teams and owners they're the last guys who get paid and so it, it's not about how you start your journey it's about the full extent of your journey and where you end up and many many the the, the mistake that many people make in cannabis is the journey's over once you get the company public that's just the that is just the very very beginning and the promises that you make are uh, people are going to remember those for a long period of time. And so the investors have a very long memory uh, and they're willing to, um, you know, depending on where the cycle is and where capital markets are at the moment where you're trying to go public, that they're, you know, they're, um, the amount of benefit that they're willing to give you of the doubt uh, changes, but, but that doesn't really change how they're going to look at you in arrears. They're always going to hold you accountable for what you said and what you did. And what, in your opinion, makes for a good company that can that can raise money? You know, what do investors? You know, you have a capital for you have a capital company. I mean, what 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 attributes of a business do you see and you say, I, I this is this is a good bet right here. Well, the bet to get involved with uh, with with Indus was really around the team and the infrastructure that they had, um, and I think it really changes situation by situation. But ultimately, what we're looking for is the ability to build enterprise value over a long period of time, and enterprise value is is a function of uh, profitability times multiple, and so uh, it's it's really your perception of where uh, those those um, you know those ingredients are going to are sort of going to be harvested in the in the landscape. There, there's there's one approach to just go and try to maximize profitability by by going to a limited license marketplace and and uh, and 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 selling you know hot dogs inside the hot dog stadium for as high a price as you can for for as long as you can until the concession runs out. Um, my challenge with that is I don't think there's a lot of terminal value there. I don't think there's a, there's much uh, at the back end. Uh, instead, you know, we're focused on building a brand that consumers embrace and associate with, uh, you know, the, the, the use of recreational cannabis in a way that nobody has done before. And, and that's where I see um, the highest enterprise value over the long term. So I'm committed to that journey and that mission. I've communicated that to all my investors uh, and I'm grateful to have an invest investing group behind us uh, that that knows what we're trying to do and, and is extremely supportive. And, and I think the you know the, the fundamental pillar of maintaining a relationship with your investors is giving them transparency. That's um, it's something that I think people miss out a lot. I think the perception is that investors only want to hear good news. That what happens when investors only want to, when investors only hear good news is they, their bullshit meter starts climbing, and and uh, and they know that no company is made up of only good news, and so they start to doubt it, and uh, and it's only a matter of time before their doubts get proven accurate. I mean, it's you you have such an insight into you know I. 
I mean, I didn't go to business school, but uh, but econ- but the, the the economy of scale and, and that sort of stuff. I mean, it, and you don't a lot of people. I don't think that I've spoke to anyway. Uh, don't sort of take this really pragmatic approach, and I really appreciate that. Um, what? Advi- well, it's been a, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I, I'm just. What advice would you have for entrepreneurs who are looking to enter this space, either as a, you know an investor or a high level executive looking to you know enter a sort of exciting space? Um, what advice do you have for those people? Just get involved. That, the honest to God truth is, uh, get get involved in any way you can. Learn about the business in any way you can. And what's going to happen? Um, because it, it, if you're looking from the outside. Uh, if you're looking from the outside, it's hard to be constructed. And in a lot of respects, this industry is so immature that it shocks uh, new entrants into it as to how many corners, how many corners of this sort of like um, this new world haven't been explored. But you don't even see that from the outside until you get involved. So find it, find an opening, take a job, take a role. It's not going to be the role you're going to be at forever, but, uh, but get involved if you can, um, if you can get involved in a leadership capacity, great. You can get involved in a in, in a in a in a in an employee capacity, great. It doesn't mean that's where the journey ends, but it certainly you got to start somewhere. What excites you most about sort of the future of the industry? Um, wow, there's so much to that question. Uh, there's so much to that question. Truth be told, I see. Um, you know, cannabis is really fascinating. Like, it's a product that, for the most part, delivers on its promise. And I, there are very few products out there that do that. And I think it's really fun to be. Um, it's really fun to be engaged in an industry like that. It's also a challenge. It's also a challenge to build a brand in an industry where pretty much all brands and all products, at some level, are delivering on their promise. Right? There's so many businesses out there. Uh, that that really fail to deliver on on their fundamental promise, uh, and it's it, and and when you look at those, then then it's easy to differentiate the ones that'll be successful because they are delivering, and the ones that won't. But Kenneth, in most part, does deliver on its promise, and that's that is um, that's a challenge, but also what makes it so exciting. How do you get how do you get through to consumers on a brand basis where the product itself? does such a great job of, uh, of delivering. Um, and I personally think that there's a huge opportunity here to, to capture at the moment where everybody goes from being somewhat discreet about cannabis consumption to being more open and casual about cannabis consumption to build a brand that really, uh, that is, is, is really sort of uh, about that transition and about um, that moment in history, because I think that's an indelible brand that will that will be around for a long, long time, and and that's uh, that's what I believe we're trying to build at Lowell. I will say that that I've. I... When it comes to branding, I think that the, it's it's especially hard for cannabis companies uh, because we haven't, you know, I mean, I've been smoking cannabis every day since I was 16 years old, and I've, you know, never had to rely on a company. I had to rely on uh, my my boy, who I guess could be a brand. Um, but I, you know, I think it's going to be really hard when when we're not used to even making those considerations for 30 years, 20 years. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and I think that. We'll change that. That's going to change over time. How it's going to change, 
is going to be, as I said, it's going to be more of a journey. Uh, and, and the brand is, the brand is going to be, um, it's, it's going to be really fun. My, for me, it's, um, the reason why I get so excited about Lowell and the reason why I, I, I was so drawn to the brand from early days, it was one of the first brands that, in my opinion, gave permission to the consumer to show off cannabis to everybody. And that, uh, as you, right, you, you know your experience with cannabis and, and as, as, a, as a user, you, you understand that for you, you feel a certain way about cannabis. But what Lowell's about is telling you that the world is going to look at you and, and the world's going to look at you uh, as mainstream and normal and as beautiful uh, as you feel about the product itself. And that, that's really what I think Lowell does so well. It makes, it makes everybody accept uh, cannabis in a way that you, you, you and I have accepted it for so long. Uh, and that's not easy to do. And so uh, that's, that's, that's a starting point for what I think is, is, uh, is really great brand equity. This has been a really fascinating uh, conversation. Not not exactly uh, what I I would have expected, just because of your of your background. So, um, and I'm not saying that in a, as a detriment. It's it's um, just uh, it's. It, just went in a different direction than I had thought, which is really excellent. Um, where can people find out more about you, more about Lowell Farms? Uh, give us give us the, the socials and that sort of thing. Well, I would generally say if people are trying to find out more about me, they'd be real bored. But I would definitely <laughs> point them to uh, I'd definitely point them to, to Lowell Farms. We we uh, we got uh, we're on uh, all all the major social media platforms. Uh, got one of the largest footprints on Instagram uh, in the industry, and um, and uh, we've got a lot planned for the near future, and super excited to to keep moving forward. And and I, the way I view it is, everything that we can do for for Lowell, we're going to do as well for the cannabis industry, and and for people who've been working real hard on this on this promise for a long time, and uh, and I think we're a good mouthpiece for it. Uh, I've got a great team that's dedicated to the mission. So uh, we have lowfarms.com has got all the, all the goodness around um, our, uh, our financial reporting, which is fundamental to any investment decision. Uh, so uh, I think it's, I think it's all out there and, and uh, look forward to, the, to talking to investors. We're, we're grateful for uh, anybody who's interested in either employee or investing in the business. We always love to hear from you. Thank you so much. That's George Allen. He's the chairman of the board for Lowell Farms. He's also the founder of cannabis industry investment firm, Geronimo Capital LLC. Thanks again, George. I, I uh, hope to uh, hear from you soon, and, and maybe we'll see you out here in uh, New York in a year and a half. We'll be there. Uh, you can count on it. Looking forward to it. You can find more episodes of the Gondrepreneur.com podcast in the podcast section of Gondrepreneur.com on Spotify and in the Apple iTunes store. On the Gondrepreneur.com website, you'll find the latest cannabis news and cannabis jobs updated daily, along with transcripts of this podcast. You can also download the Gondrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play. This episode was engineered by Trim Media House. And after, uh, what, seven years uh, of being the host of the Gondrepreneur.com podcast, I'm moving on uh, to Cannabias, uh, where I will be uh, helping to uh, demystify uh, some uh, media bias uh, coverage in the cannabis industry. 
uh, pertaining to the cannabis industry. Uh, thank you so much for listening to me rattle on uh, for these uh, seven wonderful years. I have been your host, TG Brandfalls.